Why don't you stand with me? Let's read together God's Word. It was the first Sunday of this year that I was in this pulpit, and we began 2023 with a psalm for a new year. It was the 46th Psalm. I thought it'd be right for us to conclude this year with a new psalm for a new year that awaits tomorrow, the 90th Psalm. You may be familiar with it. Might puzzle you that we're studying it today because it's often preached at funerals, and there is admittedly a sobering tone to it. But I trust you will discern with me why this is a right, good, and appropriate psalm for us to chew on as we consider a new year ahead. Hear now the words of our God. It's revealed in the 90th Psalm, beginning in verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. You return man to dust. And you say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight, they are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You see, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, or like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, but in the evening it fades and withers. We're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life, they're 70, or by reason of strength, maybe 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they're soon gone, and we end up flying away. So who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And here is the operative verse, the theme of the text. Teach us, so teach us, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Would you make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil? Let your work be shown to your servants. Let your glorious power be shown to their children. O Lord, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I'm asking that by the power of your spirit, you would come and be our teacher. That you would use me in spite of me to serve these dear folks. Lord, I'm asking that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from this word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, sometimes a sentence can change your life. It happened to me some 20 years ago. I first came across but a sentence uttered many years prior by a British missionary named C.T. Studd. It's one you've probably heard before. I've, I've heard it several times in this pulpit. First time it entered my ears, it gripped me and changed me. Read something like this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I heard that simple sentence, it pierced my heart like a dart. 
And I heard it uttered, of course, not by the one who lived in the 18th, 19th century. I, I heard it actually from a 20th century pastor, a guy named John Piper. And in this particular book, he added some additional commentary that gripped me and changed me 20 years ago when I was in high school. He said something to this effect. If you want your life to count, you, you don't need to know a lot of things. You just need to know a few things. You don't need to master a lot of things. You just need to be mastered by a few great critical things. You don't need to make a difference in this world. You don't need a high IQ. You don't need a high EQ. You don't need great health. You don't need great wealth. You don't need a fine family or a fine education. You just need to know a few great glorious things and be gripped by them. And since that day, I have been on a quest to learn those few great glorious things. I have resolved since my high school years, oh God, I don't want to waste my life, and I don't. Do you? Do you? I, I trust in a room like this, there's a great many of you that don't. It is your earnest desire that your life would be like a pebble that's going to have a ripple effect in the generations of your family, and Lord willing, roll on as waves that crash upon the shores of eternity. I trust your desire is to leave a legacy, a life that counts, that lasts, but in a room this size, there are surely some of you who don't really care whether or not your life makes any sort of difference. I wonder how many students in this room, the vision for your life is limited simply to the fact that you want to be liked and have sufficient money to enjoy it. Or I wonder how many of you in this room feel like it's too late for you. You already look back on the previous chapters of your life and it's nothing but page after page after page after page of failure, and every time a new year rolls around, it's just an acute reminder of that which you didn't get accomplished, of that which you wish you had done, if only you had not wasted your life. And if that's you, I want you to hear me that every last one of us in this room, whether young or old alike, we can, this day forward, live a life that lasts. We can make it count. God in his grace has enabled us to live lives that will have a ripple effect to eternity, and one such text in the Bible that instructs us, that teaches us, that will equip us to live a life that lasts is this 90th Psalm, a tremendous Psalm. Before I dig into this Psalm, though, I wanna answer a few objections that may quietly be simmering in your soul. I wonder how many of you are thinking, Kyler, it's, I'm too old, it's too, it's too late for this. If you only knew what has happened in my life you would know that it's too late for me to make much of it at this point. And if that's you, just note who wrote this. Do you recognize this is the oldest psalm because it tells us in the superscription that it's a prayer of who? Moses. By the way, the superscriptions are largely regarded as inspired. They're found in the oldest Hebrew manuscripts we have. So this was not written by some, you know, 20th century publisher. This is God telling us that this was Moses who wrote this. That makes this psalm, the 90th psalm, the oldest psalm. It makes it one of the oldest pages in all the Bible. And note who Moses would have likely been praying this prayer in the ears of. This likely was written when Moses was leading the most failed generation perhaps this world has ever seen. And it was not the hippie generation of the 60s. It surely was this generation in the wilderness 
that complained, did not trust the one who just parted the Red Sea, and so God made them wander in that wilderness until that generation died off. And it was to this generation that was literally wasting their life that God sent Moses under the inspiration of the Spirit to breathe this prayer. And so if you deem it's too late for you, take heart. This message that was for that generation of old is for this generation today. You can live a life that will last if you heed these lessons that Moses evidently learned. But before I explain them, I wonder, maybe some of you in this room are conversely thinking, all right, it's not that I'm too old, it's that I'm, I'm too young for this, Kyler. I, I've got... Too much life to live. I'll worry about leaving a legacy when that time comes. But right now, I want to live the dream of just enjoying life. Isn't it okay? Doesn't God want me to just have a good time? And note that this was not merely a psalm of Moses. What does the superscription say? It is a prayer of Moses. Where do you think Moses prayed this prayer? Have you guys ever considered that Moses was the most prolific undertaker in the history of the world. There is no man that probably officiated more funerals than Moses. Sorry, John Harrell, you are losing to Moses. He was responsible. He was responsible for leading, surely, hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of burials because God decreed that all of that generation would die off in that wilderness before they entered the promised land. Now, you all know that when you go to a funeral, who is it for, the dead or the living? And it's for the living. And so every time Moses stood before a gathered crowd and prayed something to the effect of Psalm 90, it was for those youngest of years that were surely gathered around, mourning the loss of a loved one that had died off in that wilderness generation. This was a word for the young. And so I plead, you would lend me your ear this day and note that one of the great secrets to living a life that lasts we find in verse 12. Two critical words I want you to underscore in the 12th verse of Psalm 90. Teach us. It is not something that's natural or intuitive to you. It must be learned from our Lord. I want you to see that something as odd as counting your days, which might even offend you at first, and thinking counting's for kids. I know how to count, and counting days, I mean, that's odd. We typically count in years. I don't typically think of my life in days. What does it mean to count the number of your days? Does that mean I should know how many days I have until I die? And of course, that's not only not the case. Who would want to know that? That would be a terrible thing to actually have to live under. He's really not saying count your days as much as he's saying make your days count. And he tells us why. Why do we need to make our days count? It's so that we could gain a heart of wisdom. Let's put it as simply as I know how. It's so that you will live wisely or so that you will live in light of eternity or so that you can live a life that lasts or put it as simply as it gets so that you won't waste the one life God's given you. If you want to learn how to live a life that lasts, you need to hear the words of Moses breathed by the Spirit of God. Teach us, O oh God, to number our days. Let me just put a banner over this message and let this phrase roll around in your mind. If you want to live a life that lasts, you need to recognize that a life that lasts must be learned. It needs to be learned. And so today, I, let's just go to school. Moses and God himself are our teachers. 
and let's learn the lessons that evidently Moses learned of old, and he breathed out in an inspired prayer. And I want to frame this message in terms of six lessons. Now, one thing you might want to know is when I write sermons, I tend to write many outlines, uh, sometimes six or eight or more until I land on one. And the outline that I originally landed on had 11 lessons, 11 points. But last week, when our pastor had 11 points, I mocked him, and I don't know if he talked about it here, but he talked about it at Mallard Creek Campus, so I thought I can't be a hypocrite and follow up with an 11-point message after I just mocked him for having an 11-point message. So we scaled it back to six lessons today. I want you guys to mark down with me six lessons that Moses evidently learned that you and I ought to learn with him by the Spirit of God's power. Oh, would he open our eyes to see these six things we need God to teach us. You could consider this like six prayers that you could pray to God in 2024. The first one, mark it down. Lord, would you teach me the peace of your providence? Let's put it another way. Teach me the peace of your presence, the fact that you are actually here. These verses start out with Moses crying out, Adonai, Lord, you are our dwelling place in all the generations. Moses was crying out, in praise of who God is because Moses had surely learned that a wasted life is often a worried life. It's one that is filled with frets, considering where am I supposed to go, what am I supposed to do, will I be okay, what do I need to do to secure myself? And so Moses just cries out, Lord, Adonai, which means sovereign God, you who are directing me, God, you are sovereignly in control of my life. You are directing every step I take. Lord, you are not only he who directs me, you are my dwelling place, my refuge, which means you who direct is you who protect me. You are a God who is directing and protecting, and it's not like you do it from time to time. You've done it in all the generations, from everlasting to everlasting. Moses is just trying to grasp just how stable God is, how unchanging and unending he is, so he looks out at that which he deems to be the oldest thing in eyesight, the mountains. And what does he say in verse two? Just behold the mountains. Maybe he has in his mind's eye Mount Sinai. And he says, behold, the mountains, before they were even brought forth, before you made the earth from everlasting to everlasting, you have been this sovereign, providential God. Moses is finding a great sense of solace and peace in the fact that there is a sovereign God who is directing him, protecting him, and he's doing so in a way that is unending and unchanging, and have you forgotten that yours is a God who will never change, who is from eternity past and will ever be unto eternity future, that yours is a God who is directing every step you take and is indeed in truth your dwelling place, your refuge. Oh, what peace we often forfeit when we forget that ours is a God of providence whose presence is manifest, who is near, who is close. And so this coming year, learn. Oh, ask the Lord to teach you that a life that lasts has learned the peace of providence. Cry out with Paul, be anxious about nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. I'm just gonna present my request to you, oh God, trusting that the peace of God which surpasses all of my understanding, will guard my mind and heart in you. Would you teach me 
to trust that you are there. Oh, Lord, you are my dwelling place. That's the first prayer we ought to breathe out to the Lord in 2023. Teach me the peace of your providence. But Moses now changes his tune. He directs his attention away from God and towards himself, which, by the way, is a very healthy thing to do. And in verses three and following, Moses begins to recognize that unlike the eternal God, he is not. He is one temporal, temporal man. Verse three, you return man to dust. Dust, what does that draw your mind to? Remember in Genesis when he says, you are dust and to dust you shall return? Moses is recognizing that if he wants his life to count, his life to last, he needs to not only learn the peace that comes from God's providence, secondly, he is crying out, Lord, teach me the urgency of eternity. Oh, open my eyes to see that a, wor a wasted life is not merely a worried life. A wasted life is oftentimes a short-sighted, myopic life. It's one that lives for the here and now and never has the long game in view. It's thinking that all of my immediate needs are that which are most critical, that thinks that I will live indefinitely, and he is reminding himself, I am but dust. And it is you, O oh God, who is going to return me to the dust. My days are numbered, they are determined by you, and my days are short. Now, forgive me, I know this is New Year's Eve. Happy New Year's, welcome to Hickory Grove. We are going to die one day. But that is a, I hope you understand, that's actually one of the most profound truths you could ever chew on. You ever been a part of a dress rehearsal? I don't know if the worship ministry that did that terrific Christmas program a couple weeks ago does, if they call it a dress rehearsal, but if you do a program of sorts, oftentimes you do a dress rehearsal, and that's where you get everything together and you rehearse what is to come, and you try to iron out all the kinks and get ready for the real thing. In a very real sense, our life is like that. It's, for lack of a better word, a death rehearsal. Our whole life is just one in which we are slowly preparing ourselves for the eternity that is to come. And so Moses is crying out, Lord, I'm not inclined to think about my death. I don't want to, so I am crying out, I'm dust. To dust I'm gonna return. Lord, would you teach me this? Help me to recognize that my life is fleeting. He starts grabbing for metaphors. It's like he's just reaching out. First off, he looks at the dry ground around him. He, there were what were called wadis. Those were dry little canyons that would often flood in a flash flood sense. And so in verses five and six, he starts to just cry out with these metaphors. My life is kind of like that flood that just very quickly washes through the wadi. It's here and then it's gone in an instant, wiping away everything. So too is my life. And then as he laid down to sleep and awoke, he reaches for a second metaphor. And he says, my life, it's kind of like a dream, as verse five says. Y'all recognize that how often is it the case that you dream a dream, you wake up and you forget it within a minute. You would have no, you knew it, it was as real to you as life, and then you forget it instantly. He's like, my life is like that. It's like a dream, here one moment, gone the next. And as he rubs the, his eyes and he gets up, he goes out and he looks at the dewy ground, surely from the morning, and he says, my life is kind of like that grass that withered at the end of the hot day in that arid climate, but overnight, the dew and the coolness would cause those little grass shoots to regenerate and to begin growing again. So too is my life. It's here today and it's burned away and then it will rise again in newness of life. He is, in other words, sealing to our souls. We've got to live with a sense of urgency about the eternity that awaits us. Just look what he said in verse four. For a thousand years in your sight, but as yesterday, 
This math doesn't add up. God lives outside of time. The time on God's clock is not the time on our clock. And so he is crying out, Lord, would you teach me not just the peace of your providence. Teach me, O God, the urgency of eternity. For when I do, I trust. Oh, I trust that I will recognize my life is but a vapor and I will live today like there is no tomorrow. I will live a life that lasts. That's the second prayer, lesson, Moses learned, and by God's grace, may you and I learn this day. Now, Moses starts to fixate on who he is. Having begun with meditating on who God is, and now meditating on who he is vis-a-vis God, he goes one step further in verse 7, and he begins to dwell on not merely who he is, but what he truly deserves For in verses 7 through 11, I want you to note that Moses begins to recognize that a wasted life is not merely a worried life. It's not merely a short-sighted, myopic life. A wasted life is a careless, reckless, sin-filled existence. It's a life that just doesn't take sin seriously. And so his third prayer, as I understand it, is him in essence crying out, oh Lord, would you teach me the seriousness of my sin? Oh, sober me with the seriousness of my sin. Just look, if you will, in verses seven and following. He cries out, we are brought to an end by your anger. That's his righteous judgment against sin. By your wrath, we are dismayed. And if you think, oh, you know what, I haven't done as much as the next guy, Moses puts a finer point on it in verse eight. You have set our iniquities, our sins before you. Our secret sins are in the light of your presence. His blinding, all-searching, holy light is such that even the darkest crevices of your soul stand exposed. The writer of Hebrews says, one day you and I will stand naked, as it were, before our maker, utterly exposed. His light is all searching. You will not be able to hide. In truth, all of us will stand before him one day without any excuse. And so Moses is crying out, there is coming a day when I am gonna get serious about my sin, when I stand before your righteous judgment But until that day comes, Lord, by your grace, would you help me take seriously my sin today? Because I am going to regret it on that final day when I stand before your just wrath and anger. Help me to regret it today. Verses 9 through 11 show us, help me to recognize that the sin I am living in this moment is ruining my life. All of my days pass away under your wrath. My life is going to end like a, a sigh. It's going to be one long regret. My years are short. In verse 11, he just cries out in some great rhetorical question, who considers, who on earth could possibly consider the power of your anger or your wrath according to the fear of you? Moses is saying there's never been a person in all history who has ever feared God too much. There's never been a person in history who's had too high a view of God's holiness. Oh, Lord, would you humble me with your holiness. Help me to see, sober me with the seriousness of my sin. You've heard the old adage that you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that is my plea to you this day is that you would make it a resolution in 2024. Lord, teach me the seriousness of my sin. I want to put to death the deeds of the body, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. I want my eyes to see who I really am in light of who you really 
are. Now, if we just ended there, that is one heck of a New Year's sermon. That is one pessimistic, down sermon. But there is great grace. Ours is a gospel, which leads us to the next prayer, the next lesson that Moses learned, and we ought to plead that the Lord would teach us. Let's skip verse 12, because that's our key operating verse. Notice what Moses cries out in verse 13. Oh, return, O Lord, have pity on us. Have pity on your servants. Moses is, in other words, crying out, don't just teach me the seriousness of my sin. Would you at the same time flip the coin and teach me the greatness of your grace? Put the good news in the word gospel. I want to know what's so good about your good news. Help me to taste and see just how good you have been to me. So he cries out, return to me, which is another word for have mercy on me. Come and do for me what I don't deserve. Have pity on me. Give me something that I don't deserve. Have grace on me. Grace is utterly unearned, undeserved. Give me mercy and give me grace. And my word to you this day is, I, I, I suspect in a room like this, there are many, many in here who in truth must admit that the gospel is not really good news to you. It is, for lack of a better word, news. The sky is blue, the grass is green, God is real, Jesus saves. It's kind of yawn-worthy, ho-hum, Christianity 101. And my word to you is if the gospel is not unspeakably great, unbelievably precious, if you don't, in whatever way the Lord has wired you, if you don't fill with an emotional sense of awe and wonder at the extent to which God has been good to you, I suspect it's because you have not learned the previous lesson the seriousness of your sin. For in my judgment and in my experience, it is only when God in his grace teaches you the depth of your depravity do you finally taste and see and love and enjoy the heights of his good graces to you. It's like that black backdrop behind a diamond. You're not gonna appreciate the wonderful uh, crystal jewel. Uh, You're not gonna see its glistening wonder until you put it against that black backdrop and see just how precious this stone of grace is. And so ask the Lord in one hand, teach me the seriousness of my sin. But in the other hand, before you just morbidly introspect, ask him at the same time to teach you the greatness of his grace, for he is a God of mercy and of grace. And if you can savor these two sweetest of words, you will learn to live a life that lasts. Oh Lord, teach me the peace of your providence, the urgency of eternity, the seriousness of my sin, the greatness of your grace, but I've still got a life to live. So what should I do between now and eternity when at last my faith has made sight? His next prayer is one that I trust you will pray. I probably don't have to help you do this one. This is one of those prayers that is close to all of our hearts. I want you to note fifthly, We see in verses, let's see, verses 14 and 15, we see a cry, oh Lord, would you teach me the secret of satisfaction? Moses surely recognized that a wasted life is not only a worried life and a short-sighted life and a careless life and a life that's graceless that doesn't take into account how good God's been to him or her, He recognizes that a wasted life is one that is desperately trying to get satisfied by that which will never satisfy, who is constantly trying, as Jeremiah says, to hew cisterns that can hold no water, 
you realize the essence of sin is thinking, buying that lie that it's gonna make you happy, that it's gonna please you, that it's finally going to do for you that which you want, and it's like a hit. You take it for a moment, it tastes good, it feels good, and then it quickly disappears, dissipates. It's a lie. And so Moses' cry is, Lord, would you teach me the secret of true, lasting satisfaction? I want you to satisfy me, verse 14 says, but with what? Satisfy me with your steadfast Love in the Hebrew, kesed, which is a covenantal, unchanging, unshakable, unbreakable love that is rooted in God and not you. That means the God who never changes and is unending. It's a love that he has irrespective of you. It's an unconditional love. And that is good news, is it not? That you can find great satisfaction in a love that will never shake, stammer, stutter, falter. It is a type of love that is unending. It is a type of love that is unchanging. It is a type of love that if you can learn it, if you can get a taste for it, it will satisfy your sin-stricken soul forevermore. So ask the Lord, teach me the secret of true satisfaction. Satisfy me with this all of my days. Oh Lord, make me glad in you for as many days as you have afflicted us. So you're thinking, Kyler, how do I do this? Do I just pray? You ever heard of George Mueller, famed uh, Christian theologian, writer? He ran many orphanages in Great Britain in the 19th century. He notably once wrote that it was his great aim in life when he would wake up, the first thing he would go about in his business was to make his heart happy in God. Now, how would he do that? It was not with a cup of coffee merely, though that is a great common grace. He would make his heart happy in God by feasting on the word. And so he would go to the word day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and he would make his heart happy in God. And may that be your great aim and your great prayer in 2024. Lord, teach me the secret of satisfaction. I want to make my heart happy in you. Mark in your margin, John 15 and verse 11. If you need a promise from God, the Bible tells us that God has spoken to us. These words I have spoken to you, Jesus says, that my word might be in you and that your joy might be full. Praise God that he has promised us that his word is for our joy, for our satisfaction. You can at last taste the satisfaction, the joy that you have so longed for if you find it in the kessed, steadfast, unchanging, unshakable love of God. Oh Lord, teach me the secret of satisfaction. Now I would be remiss if I did not conclude our message with one final prayer, lesson as it were, that we learned from Moses and the Lord himself. This could have been a banner over the whole message, but we'll leave it as a sixth and final lesson. Lastly, this year, would you cry with Moses, Lord, teach me the power of prayer? So many of us don't pray because we believe it's pointless, powerless, it's perfunctory, it's a waste, it just isn't doing much. And Moses is recognizing that a wasted life is often a prayerless life. It's a super self-sufficient, dependent life that thinks it doesn't need God to accomplish its ends. And so Moses crescendos his psalm with a high view of prayer by saying, Lord, 
Oh God, let your work be shown to me and to my kids. I need you to show yourself to be God to me. I need you to show yourself to me like you showed yourself to the generation at the Red Sea. I need you to show me, prove to me, oh God, that you are real, you are near, you are working. I need this for my kids, Lord. I am doing my best and I'm watching my child slowly but surely drift. They are wayward, they are wandering, and Lord, I am interceding, I am pleading that you would do what I cannot. Come, Lord, show yourself to me and to my children. I want to live a life that counts. I want my life to matter. I want to make a difference. I need you to show me what really matters. And in verse 17, he brings it to a great high conclusion when he says, Oh, Lord, would you let your favor be on me? Would you establish the work of my hands? If you don't establish the work of my hands, then everything I do with my hands will be for naught. It'll be a waste. I need you to not only show me what matters, I need you to help me do what matters. And I recognize I will never do anything in this life that, does, that matters unless you make it so. You must establish the work of my hands. So do you see that Moses is in essence concluding this psalm by saying, I'll never know how to live a life that lasts and I will never live a life that lasts unless God does it. He is going to have to do this. And how do you live in the presence of God, my friends? It's as easy as ABCs. You have to pray. A prayerless Christian is an oxymoron. It is a nonsensical statement. A Christian, by definition, is one that lives in the presence of God. It is one who is pleading with God. It is one who prays. And so, oh God, this year, would you teach me the power of prayer? to know what really matters, and to do what really matters. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, I don't want to waste this one life God has given me. Do you? Do you? Do you want to waste it? Just remember with me once again that you don't need to know a lot of things to make a difference. You just need to know a few things. You don't need to master a lot. You just need to be mastered by but a few things. And so my word to you this day is learn with Moses from our Lord on high. Oh God, this year would you teach me these few wonderful precious lessons. Teach me the peace of your providence. Teach me the urgency of eternity. Oh Lord, show me the seriousness of my sin and the greatness of your grace. Let me learn the secret of true, lasting satisfaction. And oh God, would you this coming year teach me the power of prayer. Lord, I want to live a life that lasts. Do it in my life, I pray. But if upon hearing all I have just said, you can't help but hauntingly think, Tyler, I've already wasted it. My life, I, I don't think it really can be fixed. There's too many chapters that have already been written in my life. I don't think I'm going to live one that lasts, that counts. And if that's you, would you hear me this one final moment? There is another life to come. This is not your only life. There is another chapter that can be written if it is written by the author of life.
the one who can redeem the final pages of your life, the one who can rework the script such that your final pages will outshine all the multitudinous chapters of the greatest lives in history. If you but, like the thief of the cross of old, cry out to the author of life, believe he is who he says he is, turn from your sin and receive the grace and mercy he has offered you, that author of life will rewrite the script of your life and he will make your latter days, if not latter hours, outshine all the ones that came here to forward. So my call to you this day is to cry out to him and plead that he would do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Oh, dear church, would you believe with me this coming year the power of prayer? Teach me, oh God, to number my days. Sometimes a sentence really can change your life. Why don't you join me as we pray? I'm gonna ask that the Spirit of God would do what my mere in eloquent words cannot, and that is stir your soul, open the eyes of your heart to see this God as an all-sovereign Lord guiding you, guarding you, directing you, protecting you, to see your life as a vapor, to grant you by his grace a sense of urgency about the eternity that awaits you, to open your eyes anew to the seriousness, severity, weight of your sin and conversely, the weight and wonder and glory of his grace to give you a taste for true satisfaction, that secret that is found in him and him alone, and to by faith leave this place banking your life on the power of prayer to know how to live a life that counts and to in truth live a life that will last. In a moment, we're gonna sing, and when we do, the call to you this day is if you know that you know that your days are numbered and that your life is not leaving a ripple effect. The call of Christ to you this day is to come. He is the author of your life and he can rewrite the final pages this day if you turn from your sins and believe him. And so you come. There are pastors down here at the front who are here for that sole purpose, to pray with you. Perhaps you want to put into effect the power of prayer in 2024 and cry out to him, whether in your pew or down here at the front. The call to you this day is to come. Father God, Adonai, Sovereign Lord, our dwelling place, author of life, would you so move in this room that we would never be the same. Change us, oh God, perhaps by but a sentence. Teach us to number our days that we might live a life that lasts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? And as we stand and as we sing, the call to you this day is to come.